It's, uh, it's great to, to be with you and uh, just to have spent some time with Graham, with Ben, getting to know Ben uh, over last night. It's, uh, it's real been real fun, kindred spirits, um, and uh, it's just a pleasure to be uh, kind of back with you. And so I think just as we've been worshipping and just spending time with God, it's, it's helpful for us just to consider, I want you to know this is a safe place uh, this morning. Uh, and it's an opportunity for you guys to get real vulnerable um, with each other, with God. Um, and with that, for transparency to come, it's easy for us to be vulnerable without being transparent. Um, so I can be vulnerable up here and tell you, you know, I've messed up and I did this or I did that. And there's a certain element of vulnerability, but that's not always transparency. Um, and I think this is a, a time for us as men together to get kind of transparent with God as well. And even though he knows what we're thinking, we kind of think like he might not. Um, and so just, I just want you to like really decide this morning that you're going to press through the pain, the awkwardness. And if God speaks to you, you're going you're gonna to do something about it. Does that seem fair? So, you know, as the Holy Spirit begins to speak to you, and I'll, I'll make space, I'm sure Ben will as well, is just to respond to that. And what I'd like you to do right now, and just we'll just take a moment of silence, is make that promise to God that says, if you speak to me, I will stand or I will respond or I will do whatever it is. Because I believe today will be a significant time for you as men, be a significant time for you as a church. But it's going to take that kind of vulnerability and courage for you to break through where you are into something else. That's why it's called breakthrough. It's not a walkthrough. It's a breakthrough. Um, and you've got to break through. So is that okay? I'm going to be uh, looking at uh, a few bits and bobs today. So I'm going to be ducking and diving and moving around. But um, just the sense of one of the things that Graham kind of mentioned to me was this, that verse in Psalm uh, 69 verse 9 where it says, The zeal for your house has consumed me. And I wonder where we are as men in that you know zeal's not a word uh, we kind of use very often um, and it's it's that combination of action and faith really together and that sense of of passion and you know it's kind of like where's our passion as men for the advance of the kingdom of God um, because zeal has something to do with action you know it's somehow we can be very passionate about football you know, I'm a Green Bay Packers fan. I love American football. I'm very passionate about it. But that passion involves me sitting in an armchair. <laughs> and I think zeal is different. Zeal is something that is, is, is actionable. It's something that happens. And as, as you kind of look in the Bible, zeal is a word that's used a lot. It's not a word we use much, but it's used quite a bit. And as I was kind of just looking through, I came across... Isaiah 59, 17, it says this, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And you're already probably going across to Ephesians, where I'll go in a minute. And it says, He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And I kind of thought, oh. So immediately I was drawn off to, you know, the, the uh, armour of God. Because obviously there's the exact same words, righteousness as a breastplate, helmet, salvation. But there's this sense of being wrapped in zeal as a cloak. Now when I consider the, the armour of God, 
Now, now hear me right here. I think it's brilliant. But I get this sense when I read it of it's almost passive. Do you know what I mean? It kind of feels to me like it's about not conceding the land I've won. So all of the terms, and it's a shield of faith, so I'm, I'm kind of ducking behind the darts of the enemy. It's kind of like, stand strong, stand firm. And actually there are seasons in life, of course, where we, we need to do that. But somehow, we always feel like the armour of God, I do anyway, is it, it seems like it's, it's about not giving up land. But as that Isaiah verse says, it's that I also wrap a cloak of zeal around me which seems to me to be much more about taking ground you know and just as a, you can have this one for free there's no armor for your back so no one's expecting anyone to stab you in it that's why in the church we have no armor for our back so don't go stabbing people in it that's just saying you can have that one for free Okay, so, so that whole sense of the zeal moving forward and it's important that we, we, we use the armour of God to keep ground. But actually, God is calling us to be ground takers, not simply ground keepers. And um, you read Matthew 11 verse 12. It says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and violent men take it by force. What does that mean? Violent men take the kingdom by force. Men full of zeal and passion and action extend the kingdom. That is quite a verse. And I think we probably need to, to meditate on it. And, and Paul even speaks to the church in Rome. And he, it's this whole sense of us not being passive. And he says, from, um, do not be slothful in zeal but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord there's a, a, a call for us not to be slothful in zeal which does seem a bit of an oxymoron um, doesn't it in that so how can you be slothful in zeal but but there's that that sense of kind of I think we do it a lot you know we kind of hold a value of zeal but our action is slothful and that's the difference, and that's what Graham was saying earlier about, you know, culture is more than just values. Culture is living out those values. It's, it's that sense of knowing the values without being told the values because it's just in the culture. And I think probably in the West and certainly in the southeast of England, we have a culture of slothful zeal. We're all men together, so I'm just going to say how it is today. Is that, is that all right? Don't suddenly look like you're, some of you look like you're sucking on a lemon. <laughs> this is church, but not as we know it. But it and, and I, so I think there's this sense of, of we've got to be and learn to be ground takers. Um, we were talking last night about legacy, you know, and uh, from business. I often get asked, what's your 10-year plan? And I don't have a 10-year plan. I have a 100-year plan. I can't accomplish a 100-year plan on my own. I've got to build legacy. I've got to build something that's going to long outlast me. A 10-year plan I can do. God willing, I don't kill myself on my motorbike on the way home. 
But that's okay, because I'm going to glory. I'm his favourite. I don't know if I told you that. Um, but, but just so you know, I'm his favourite. That could well be true for you as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm his other favourite. <laughs> and so there's that sense of, guys, we've got to kind of buck up and start pushing forward. And I do think that the church in the West and the church certainly in the South East, there, there is a danger that we will die out through slothful zeal slothful zeal because we're just used to holding ground not taking it Um, and I think there's a a, a genuine possibility of that and I think part of that is due to the fact that actually we've we've produced a generation of pacifists where we've actually overdosed on grace To the point of we've allowed the message of grace to produce passivity. We've allowed it to produce a license of inactivity. And we've got an aversion to kingdom works. Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 10 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Hallelujah. And it is not of your own doing. Thank you, Jesus. This is so good. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. That is the foundation of everything we believe. We've been saved by grace, not by works. It's a free gift of God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's the same sentence which God prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. So we have been saved by grace, not by works. We've been saved by grace, not by works, but we have been saved by grace for works. And it's been God's intention, even when he created uh, Eden, he put Adam in there to work. Before the fall, when everything was perfect, it was so Adam could work. He was to work the land. Work is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. And we've been saved, not through those works, but for those works. We've been saved not by our own effort, but we've been saved to put in effort. And I believe that if we're not careful, we can overdose on this grace message. That same grace that saves you, empowers you for works. That same grace that was a free gift of your salvation, empowers you to extend the kingdom. It's the same grace. And so that same grace that says, yeah, I've messed up, I've done it all wrong and it's okay, also empowers you to stop doing it. It also empowers you to move on and expand the kingdom. And I believe that is where God is, is calling us. There's, a, there's a, a leaning into, I call it, what God's called us to do. It's, it's that sense, even, even with the prophetic, there's an element of we have to engage with the prophetic word, don't we? We have to lean into it. You know, if God says, Andy, you're going to be, you know, uh, the, the next president-elect, which, let's face it, I have every possibility of being able to do. The, the 
<laughs> if God speaks to me about being the Prime Minister, let's be less contentious, um, and that is the word from God, then I can sit by the phone and wait for Theresa May to call me and say, would you like my job? <coughs> Unlikely. But I could go and do a degree in politics. I could go and join a local political party. And I could begin to lean into that prophetic word. I can't make it happen, but I can cooperate with it. And I think we have this tendency sometimes to just sit around and, and wait. You know, the kingdom of heaven suffered violence and violent men take it by force. Zealful men take it by force. And so one of the most important things about zeal in the kingdom is that it is mixed and powered by faith. So it's faith that stirs us. It's not ambition. But it's, it's faith because God has spoken to us. And in Hebrews 11, it tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now ask yourself, what things are you doing without any faith that you think somehow pleases God? It's interesting. Are you giving without faith? Thinking that will please God? Well, I pay my tithe. If you're not doing it with faith doesn't please God. In fact, Paul goes further in Romans, doesn't he? And he says, anything you do that's not by faith is sin. Faith's a big deal. And it's a big part of how we live with zeal. And so I've been looking over the last sort of three or four months at the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 and just looking at the, the stories there and what's included and uh, as I've been studying I, I was reading something by um, A.W. Tozer and he says this we can be in our day what the heroes of faith were in their day but remember at the time they didn't know they were heroes it's a fantastic quote and that is what we are being sort of called to and you probably wouldn't feel like it at the time you might not feel like a hero right now, but actually history will look back and call you one if we step up as men to be men of zeal and faith. And I think that you look at the so-called heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, many of them were unstable, many of them had mixed motives, and most of them were not altogether pure. There was faith mingled with fear. There were elements of their lives riddled with unbelief. And as uh, one of my personal heroes from way back when, a guy called A.W. Pink, he says this of them. He says they were, this is very English, you're going to like this, Ben. He says they were hard beset by carnal reasonings. <laughs> yeah? They lived by the flesh, big time, I think, was what he was trying to say. Um, and the good thing about reading the stories of the, the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 is, is that uh, our own, if you like, desire to justify our own exclusion from doing what God wants us to do disappears. Because if you, if you look at how messed up they were, 
Yet what they achieve for God, not one of us has got an excuse for not doing anything. And fear, unbelief, even a lack of understanding of your identity as a son does not remove disobedience. And when we look at what God's called us to do, not doing it is simply disobedience. And for sure, knowing who we are in God, knowing what it is to be a son, um, all of those things, replacing fear with courage and all of that stuff that comes with that, makes that job easier. But it's not having it isn't an excuse for not, for not doing it. And I think looking through Hebrews 11, it also removes us from the excuse that things are just too hard at the moment. It removes the excuse that, well, it's just my life's just complicated um, at the moment or I'm in too dark a place at the moment. You read the stories of the men of Hebrews and women of Hebrews 11 and those excuses go. And again, A.W. Pink says this, It was during seasons of great spiritual darkness and gloom that faith produced many of its mightiest works and achieved some of its most notable victories. For faith is not dependent on favourable outward condition. It is sustained and energised by one who is infinitely superior to all circumstances. And so this, this passage that I love reading through the Heroes of Faith in Hebrews 11, actually as you read it, is about their faith alone. It's not a comment on or a commendation of everything about their lives. It's just about <coughs> their faith. It's not that the writer to the Hebrews by any means commends all that they did or that he excuses their manifold imperfections which cannot be vindicated. He makes mention here only of their faith. And so over the next few minutes I want to kind of look at one of those heroes of faith um, who interestingly hardly gets a mention um, but we would probably hold up as a massive hero of faith, and that's <coughs> David, King David. Um, and uh, it's, it's very, very interesting. I don't know if you've noticed, we were talking about this this morning, in, in Hebrews 11, you know, it starts off with, with an interesting list, to be honest. I mean, there's, there are people in there that I don't even know why they're in there, and there are lots of people that aren't in there that you think probably should be, no Joshua, no Caleb, no Esther, you know, none of these people are in there. But equally, when you look at it, it starts off reasonably chronological and then kind of disappears into who knows. You know, it mentions David before Samuel, for example. Um, and what you see in, in, through Hebrews 11 is it starts off with the men and their, uh, their specific areas of faith. But actually, as the writer goes on, he brings it down into a funnel where it becomes less about the men and more about the actions of faith. Um, and that's what you see in that, in that funnel as it comes. Um, and David, as, as he's mentioned in it, is grouped with five other men. And then, and then it's, almost like, it's almost like the writer gets fed up with naming people. And he just says, oh, and the prophets. You know, he just puts this massive kind of uh, group together. And then if you read through, um, and let's have a look at Hebrews 11, 32 to 34... What we start to see is him becoming more focused on, on the results and consequences of their faith rather than the individuals. And he says, what more can I say? For time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, and of David and Samuel and the prophets. 
who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, uh, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Now he's, he's kind of grouped all the people together and he's mixed up some of the kind of stories. You know, when he talks about David, one assumes that when he says mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight, possibly even conquering kingdoms and certainly obtaining the promises, you kind of think, well, that probably relates to, to David. But even as you go on reading, he, he then begins to kind of talk about closing the, the mouths of lions, which I guess you don't need a degree in theology to work out is Daniel, one of the prophets um, that he talks about. But, you know, it goes on and talks about people being sawn in two and all of this kind of stuff. And you're thinking, where, where is all this? Where is all this going? Um, but he's, he's beginning to stir the issue of faith and zeal rather than holding up any one man as the best example be like him because they were all messed up in different kind of ways. Um, and one thing I see as I look through that list of heroes is that there was a process of each of them being brought to a place of recognising their own insufficiency in order to recognise the all-sufficiency of God. And that's each one of their stories. And for some of them, it was a significant battle to remove that self-reliance. And for others, it was quicker. So Jacob, if you think of the story of Jacob, you know, he, he would be the one you kind of think, yeah, there's, there's someone who's self-reliant, if ever I've seen it. And his story is long, and it takes him a long while to get through self-reliance. It takes him many, many years um, as, he, as he goes through that. Um, but others like David actually learn very early on to rely on his all-sufficient Father God. He, he learned that very early as a young boy. And I think, obviously, when we think of David, there's many stories we get drawn to. But, you know, the boy's own stuff is obviously David and Goliath is, is the kind of, certainly where I would swing to in my, my thinking. And I think it would be helpful for us to have a little a look at that as we draw out some of these issues. But, you know, the, the thing I really kind of want to land on, if we are going to be ground takers and not just ground keepers, then we need to kill self-reliance. Yes. We really do. So let's have a look. 1 Samuel 17, 32 to 37. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight out. Fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just but a boy. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when uh, there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Uh, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw and the lion uh, of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. I love that. The confidence of this, this young lad. But the thing I want to draw our attention to is before killing a giant, he learned to kill what I call the little foxes. 
And in, in the Song of Solomon, it says this. It says, catch the little foxes for us. This is the wife talking to her husband. Catch the little foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard, for our vineyards are in blossom. And there's that sense of, even with the story of, the, of, of killing the mountain lions and, and, and killing the bears that come, that David had learnt to kill the little foxes before he got to fight the giant. Um, and it's often those little seemingly insignificant things that spoil the significant things. And David learned to kill those insignificant things almost before he got the chance to kill the giant. Um, and in David's life, the, the bear and the lion were a training ground for Goliath. He didn't know it at the time, but it was part of, of his training in understanding the all-sufficiency of God in his life. Um, and that was the process that he was able to then take on a giant. When he says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Because he'd, he'd seen the faithfulness of God in the, in the small things. That he was confident of, of the faithfulness of God in the big things. He'd learned not to be reliant on himself, but to trust in God. Um, he learned in, in the field as a shepherd that he could not survive by being self-sufficient. And most of those other men, actually, in Hebrews 11, it took a long time for them to get rid of self-reliance or pride. Now, pride is your own delight in your self-reliance. That's what pride is. It's your self-praise of your own self-reliance. You all got really. You, someone's chewing a wasp there. I can see them. <laughs> Okay, it's not meant to be a heavy deal, but it's true. Pride is your own delight in your self-reliance. Um, and it's something that will, will cause us problems. And, you know, Moses, it took him a long time, didn't it? It, it, it? it took a long time to get him out of Egypt, and it took even longer to get Egypt out of him. A long, long process for him. You know, self-reliance is the kryptonite of ground takers. It is the thing that will cause you to become weak. If you're self-reliant, then, then you're never really going to be a person of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Self-reliance, by its definition, is in opposition to faith in God. By definition, self-reliance is putting faith in your own abilities. It's relying on the fact and putting your faith in that you can do it yourself. That's what self-reliance is. And the phrase that I use all the time at the minute is start something only God can finish. That's what faith is. But self-reliance will prevent you from doing that. Self-reliance will cause you to only start things you know you can finish. But faith requires you to start something that only God can finish. You will never take on a giant like Goliath unless you're prepared to attempt the impossible. And this is what killed the armies of the Lord as they were sitting, waiting, trembling at the threats of Goliath. 
because they were unwilling to start something they didn't think they could finish. But that's why David could do it, was because he was prepared to start something he knew he couldn't finish. And we all kind of think, well, I want to be like David, I want to be unafraid of anything. I don't believe David was unafraid. But what he was prepared to do is start something that he couldn't finish in his own, in his own strength. Now, let me say that there is a difference in knowing your gifts, in having a confidence in your gifting, and in a, a confidence in your ability in a way that is not self-reliant, but humble and honest. So I don't want us all going, I'm a, I'm a worm, I can't do anything on my own, I'm an idiot. Nothing. No, you know, there, there is the, we can humbly be confident in the gifts that God has given us. We can humbly do that but without it becoming self-reliant. So we don't want to suddenly kind of just hide everything. Um, and to quote a very famous social commentator and theologian, Black Adder, um, <laughs> he says this, one ought not to blow one's own trumpet, but it would be nice to know that one did in fact have a trumpet. <laughs> And so that's the difference. Do you know what I mean? It's nice to know that you've got a trumpet without having to blow it yourself. And so self-reliance is the enemy of faith. It's the enemy of being full of zeal. It'd be a zeal, a zeal killer. Um, because self-reliance is so quick to give birth to a performance mentality. Performance mentality reinforces self-reliance. It's easy to get into a performance state of mind. You know, maybe that you prophesy regularly or you're worshipfully a musician or even a pastor, Bible teacher. No one's kind of excluded from it. And that place of real anointing sometimes can get dimmed, but we can carry on as though it's not. And sometimes our best inner thespian comes out on a Sunday. Where we are West End stage quality actors. And we put on a performance. It's easy maybe, not just limited to those kind of up front, but, but for all of us where, you know, we've not been walking with Jesus. We've not been in the word. We've not been worshipping and praying through the week. And, and yet we, we put on a, some kind of performance on a Sunday as though we have. Because we've come to be self-reliant and it gives way to performance. And we can all, as I say, suffer, suffer from this. And some of our heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 took decades to learn not to rely on their own shrewdness and skills and ability. I think that, as I say, Jacob, one of, the, one of my favourite stories, but it took decades for him to kind of work, to work that out. But David learnt uh, it as a, as a young man. And I think the, the <coughs> ability for us to put on a show is just reinforces our, our self-reliance. I'm just kind of <laughs> sensing a whole lot of Holy Spirit right now. So I'm going to just pause for a minute. Um, 
and ask, does anybody identify with that? Does anybody feel like right now where you're at in your walk with God, in your life here is more of a show than reality? Big moment for you to be bold, but if you want to pop your hand up, I'd love to pray with you, stand with you. Going once, going twice. Yep, go. Because my question really is um, finding that middle ground between that self reliance and doing yep. the worm yep. and ping ponging between yep. the two. Um, I guess the question is probably in my heart is that I feel like I'm between both. Between places. the two? Yeah. Okay. Anyone else identify with that? Just that kind of struggle between self reliance on one hand and, and being the worm on the other, trying to be super humble, yeah? Why don't you guys stand? If, that, if that's you, and that's what the Holy Spirit's speaking about, then let's, let's pray. Anybody else kind of just finding, or you're, you know, if you're all okay, that's absolutely fine. Okay, the way I do this stuff is you just need to know I'm not the man of power for the hour. Okay, I'm, I'm just a mouthpiece for the Holy Spirit, and we can all minister in the Holy Spirit. So if you know these guys, you're near these guys, and you're full of faith, go and put your hands on them. And yeah, go, please. This might help some guys to stand. I know I'm being self-reliant when if I fail, I beat myself up. Yeah. That's good. Um, as opposed to, God, what are you teaching? And therein lies the show. I, I can act like I'm doing all right, but I'm beating myself up because I'm not succeeding. And that, that, that condemnation that I'm just not good enough that indicates to me always that there's a measure of self-reliance as opposed to God, what are you teaching me? Right? So if any of you are struggling with that self-reliance, then you can stand and okay. get the same thing, only at a different angle. Yeah, very good. Very good. Very well, good. Since, since it was my story. <laughs> okay, so if you're on your feet, so you can see who's on their feet. If you feel, if you've got faith to kind of pray for people, we believe in the ministry, the ministry of, of all believers. So please go and put your hands on your friends, pray for your friends. If they're not your friends, pray for them anyway. Introduce yourself, make friends. Yeah, love, your, love your enemies. Yeah, don't let anyone stand on their own. So if you can see someone stood uh, on their own. Just go and if you're on, if if no one's praying with you yet, just pop your hand up for me so we can see. Is everybody got someone praying with them? I got another question. Great. Is there anybody sitting who's afraid to stand because it would be embarrassing? Uh, okay, great. Okay, you guys just pray and then I'll pray in a moment over us all and then we can we can press on. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you you move and you touch our lives, Father. And we just want to stand together right now Lord God and say Father that we are reliant on you we want to be men who know your all sufficiency in our lives and Father we ask Lord right now whether we're standing because of fear whether we're standing because we know we're self-reliant or whether we're standing because we find it difficult sometimes to tell the difference Lord I pray Lord God would you enlighten our hearts in Jesus name Amen Amen. Thank you, God. You're so good. Theology should lead us to risk, to faith, and to action. It shouldn't lead us 
into prideful conceit that we've got our theology right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and one of the things I love talking about is, look, you know, and, and particularly I love uh, New Frontiers, been part of it for decades, and I love our commitment to the word, I love our theology, um, but actually I want to experience my theology. Now, I believe that Jesus called us to lay hands on the sick and they'll be healed. That's my theology. My experience is somewhat lacking. My theology says that I can go and make disciples of all nations. My experience is somewhat lacking. But it's very easy to know we've got our theology right and not actually do anything. And sometimes we even get to the point where we're so pleased with our theology that we'll throw rocks at people that have different theology to us, but are actually experiencing the theology that we hold. And we need to be very careful about that. We need to be very, very careful about that. Because our theology is not just a rock that we hurl at other people. It needs to be producing life and action and outcome. Now... Seeing results is not an excuse for poor theology, but actually good theology without any results is questionable too, I think. So, let's keep pressing on. I think, you know, we recognise that David learnt before he he killed Goliath to to get rid of self-reliance, but... Another thing we see straight through with all of this is that, that David got first things first and he built a deep relationship with his father in heaven. And, and you know, that is so evident. Before David slew Goliath, he grew in relationship and in favour with God. And we forget that we can grow in favour with God. We kind of look at God's favour on us as something he gives to us, but... You know, you read the story um, of uh, Samuel, you read the story of Jesus. It says he grew in favour with God and with man. How does Jesus grow in favour with God? But we, we're called to do that, to learn to grow in favour. And favour is one of those things that the more you use it, the more you step into it, the more you enjoy it, the more you get um, and uh, there's that sense of learning to grow in favour, um, and that comes through deep relationship with, with Father God. And, and David learned that early on. Um, he took time in the fields to, to spend worshipping and, and, and deepening his relationship you know, with God. And you know, it was that relationship with God that David maintained and he sustained and he continued with throughout his life. So whether it was in the field on his own or through his public ministry, if you want to call it that, he learned what it was to maintain that depth of relationship with God. You read the Psalms that he wrote, and you'll see his life in God. You'll see the ups and the downs, the, the joys and the disappointments. Yet you always see that depth of relationship coming through to the point where everything had gone wrong. You know, when he's been out doing the stuff, he's been anointed as king, but not recognized as king. Who knows? That's frustrating. 
it's frustrating. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, it's not like, you know, the prophet coming and saying, oh, you're going to do X and nobody else sees it for, you know, but this is like, you're going to be king, you know, and, and there were so many opportunities for David to become self-reliant and he could have killed Saul several times, but he wouldn't touch God's anointed because his relationship was so deep with God that he knew that it would come about in God's way. And so even at the, the pits of despair and difficulty, when he comes back to the camp, you know that story, when he comes back and basically all their families have been taken off and plundered and all of his men, all of them just like, you know, we're going to kill you, you're crazy. You know, you know, what does it say? He strengthened himself in the Lord. He'd learned what it was to have that deep relationship. And he'd learned through thick and thin to strengthen himself in the Lord. And so, you know, for us, before we desire public ministry or public recognition or the adulation of men, we need to have first found our identity in God <coughs> before all of that. And, you know, David, although he was an imperfect man, he failed in the area of sexual purity, lust, deceit, murder was still seen firstly by God and then by men as a man after God's own heart. Because he'd learned to dig deep into his relationship with God. And although there were consequences to his actions, he didn't get a free pass. When you spoke to God of David, his first response is, he's a man after my heart. 